Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never-been-heard-before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about, so you can create the life that you really want but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And today we have a very special guest, but before I introduce her, We're going to have a special treat. Today's guest is very special, and we are really, really, besides that treat, we are in for a major treat. We are here with Kristen Mangione, the dance alchemist. She's a choreographer, dancer, teacher, and healing artist committed to transforming the world through dance. Her movement meditation creation, Dance Alchemy for the Soul, is the synthesis of her over 20 years of dancing professionally practicing and teaching Eastern philosophy and metaphysical studies. Now, today, we are going to have a taste of Kristen's dance alchemy, and I can't wait to experience it. I can't wait for you to experience it. And welcome, Kristen. Hi. So let me just say that in your video there, all I could look at was your abs and your muscles and how toned and amazing your body is. And if that's what dance alchemy does, I'm in. Just sign me up right now. So let's schedule that. I'm just kidding. But anyway, welcome to the show. I can't wait to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here. Welcome. All right. So we were going to start, before we get into dance alchemy, we were going to start with how Kristen maybe got out of touch or in touch with her body during her growing up and how she, you know, found this dance alchemy. So, you know, you had been talking, we had talked before, you have a couple of pivotal stories. Uh, Which one would you like to start with and how that affected you? Well, uh, I would say that the first um, important experience for me, really, that that formative story um, was when I was sometime in elementary school. Um, And at the time, I was just like an innate creative. 
I was innately really a dancer. Like I, it was something that just, I didn't even think about it. It was like, I was always just moving. And uh, my parents used to tell the story that when I was about three years old, um, I would stand in the living room in front of the television on Sunday nights. And that was back when Sonny and Cher was the big Sunday night television show. And I would channel Cher, you know, I didn't have quite the length of the hair, but, but I would just like mimic her moves. And my parents would just sit there and be like, what is she doing? <laughs> so it was like this, this innate need to move. And, um, I really, I was very sensitive. So I could feel, um, especially when I would hear music, I would naturally want to move and dance. And, um, my first experience that really shaped not fostering this, but rather inhibiting this was when I went to elementary school and my first experience of basically being bullied, you know, at the time, I don't know that that term would have been used, but um, having the experience of being the youngest kid at the bus stop and staring at the ground because I didn't want to make eye contact with the other kids because they would, you know, kids are cruel. They would sometimes make these little offhand comments about, you know, she's weird. She has, I'd just gotten glasses. And so I kind of looked little different. And, um, and then it really, um, when I was, I think close to probably somewhere around the third or fourth grade, um, I was off doing my thing on the playground. Um, the kids, the other kids, they were playing, you know, t-ball on the ball field. And I kind of tucked myself away, uh, in the, on the edge of the playground where I thought nobody could see me. And I was kind of moving around in my head and dancing and just feeling so great, especially after sitting in this is more crafts classroom, which I just felt was so boring and uninspiring to me. And my classmates saw me. And then the next thing I heard was the ridicule. I heard, she's such a weirdo. What's wrong with her? What is she doing? Stop it. You're so stupid. And it was like that first kind of, I will say like a wound to my heart because it was my first real experience and taste of if I want to be accepted, I have to suppress myself and I can't be myself. And um, at the time now, when I look back, you know, um, it was one of those, well, kids are just being kids. However, being a really sensitive, shy kid to begin with. You know, I was also an only child, so I was often in worlds with a lot of other adults. So I had to, you know, act really mature and um, kind of have it like I had it all together, even though I didn't, I was just still a little kid. Um, so I really took it on that, um, okay, I'm just gonna suppress myself. I'm not gonna automatically raise my hand when I know the answers in class. Um, cause they might say something about me again. I don't want to be a show off. Um, I basically have to stop being me if people are going to like and accept me. And, you know, looking back, I actually got really obsessive about it. Like even before I would speak, I would always be aware. How does, what's the mood? And I learned later that was actually an amazing intuitive gift that I have is that, um, as what's called empathy, I can, I can feel often what other people are feeling, their mood. Um, and as a healer, that's an amazing gift. But when I was in elementary school, it felt like it was a curse. 
So that was um, a really tough time. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I had a terrible childhood, but it definitely shaped and molded me and had me be a certain way. So did you stop dancing uh, or did you just dance when no one could see? I yes. mean, yeah. And yeah. did you ever take dance lessons or were you just a natural dancer? Yes. Okay. That's uh, well, both. So I innately, um, you know, that, that, tendency was in me. And then by the time I reached, I was about nine years old. I was in fourth grade. I remember my parents said to me, they said, do you want to take dance lessons? Because clearly this is not just, they didn't say this, but you know, this was really their thinking. Like, this is not a phase. <laughs> um, and, I, and I had taken a little bit of gymnastics when I was around the age of kindergarten and, and kind of got bored. It wasn't really my thing. Um, but dance and performing, you know, um, I remember with my friends and with my cousins who were like my surrogate siblings, we were always playing show. We were always playing solid gold. Gives you an idea of the time in which I grew up. That you know, so I I wanted to you know I wanted to be one of the solid gold dancers. I wanted to be Marilyn Maku. <laughs> so um, yeah, so at, when I was about nine, I started with ballet and tap. So um, yes, I did suppress that side of myself in school. Um, you know, I was still being careful and outside of that setting where it was so-called safe because it was, you know, the context, um, I was starting to learn the basics of dance technique with, with my peers. Wow. Okay. All right. So that, and what were they, why were they bullying you? I mean, you seem perfectly normal to me, like you should have fit in, like what, and I know you never know why people bully, but do you have any idea why? Well, at the time I, you know, I took it, I made it very personal. I thought like, well, there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. And of course, as an adult, I can see it's actually the converse. And interestingly enough, uh, when I started doing healing work about, it's almost been 20 years. So about 15 years ago, I did a session with a, with a fellow healing artist and he, um, I don't even know what the modality was he was doing, but he was working with my heart field and, and without me sharing any of this story with him, he said, you know, did you have some kind of a trauma, um, that had you really shut down your self-expression when you were, you know, a little kid? Because what I'm getting is that there was something about you decided it wasn't safe to really be fully out and visible. And then I, I thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, actually, I, and it was, you know, it was late and I'd forgotten about it. Yeah. So, and it was, he's saying that, and it was what he said with that. He said, you know, what I'm getting intuitively is that the reason that happened is you were still fully self-expressed and they were already, they had already been shut down by the adults. Mm. So I was actually their trigger. You were a threat. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And what people cannot be with, sometimes they will shut down because it's a reflection of their own discomfort. So I really see that now as like I was fully out and happy to be myself and my light was a threat. Wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I mean, not cool and cool. Okay. Yeah. No, I know. In, in retrospect, I, it is cool to, to, to recognize that. And to realize that that was a very powerful self-realization. Yeah. And you wonder, were they bullying everybody? And you just took, you know what, like you wonder, right? It seems, it does seem like you're the only one, um, but 
I wonder, you know, they might've been doing it different. Who knows? Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that was then. Okay. So then, all right. So you were nine and now we're getting to your 10 year old thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. We want to talk about that. Yeah. So, um, so I'm, I, by the time I was close to 10, I was already in this kind of two sides of the same coin, like being fully myself in certain settings and then learning to temper myself to, you know, fit in, be a people pleaser, basically, um, and somewhat anonymous Mm. for safety. Um, And then, you know, the real um, apex to that was um, sometime between nine and 10, um, experiencing an episode of sexual abuse that um, I had a great uncle, I uh, was on my mother's side, my mother's uncle, um, who they, he and his wife, they were geographically the closest living to my family. Most of my extended family um, lived further away out in Pennsylvania, and I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, these were people who, we didn't see them all the time, but like, I definitely, you know, we had a connection and a relationship. We would visit periodically, maybe like twice or three times a year. And it was, you know, it was kind of extended family. Um, and what I remember at the time, I mean, I do, I remember, I, they say with trauma, you know, it imprints differently in the brain and the long-term memory, you know, so I do have very specific visual um, recognition of like what the house looked like. And um, the instance I was, I was by myself, of course, practicing my flute. I was studying flute at the time in school and we had gone there for a cookout and everyone was outside. And so, um, you know, this, this man, adult, um, grown up family member who I had never had any reason to not to trust became a predator. And what was really startling to me, and I think I say really has a lot to do with my entire the work that I do now about connecting with the body is that even at my approximately 10 year old state, my gut knowing was that something bad is going to happen. And I, my gut tells me I need to do something. I need to remove myself. I need like something, something is off from that whole visit from the minute we got there. And up until like, and, and basically while this was taking place, you know, they say in, in, in abuse, the response of fight or flight, and then there's also freezing. And basically um, for, you know, I indefinite amount of time, I don't know, it could have been a minute, it could have been an hour, like I had no sense of time, but I literally went into a freeze going into, I felt like I died. Like I, I completely disembodied as a way to survive, you know, which is what animals do. It's from the limbic survival brain that when you can't run and you can't fight, you feign right, yeah. in order to be left alone. And, um, and I, and so that experience of a numbing a detaching from myself, Mm. from my body, especially after I had already started to suppress that natural full 
life force energy in myself from my previous experience was kind of like the final lid, like put on the container. Um, so, not, so, I mean, I hate to ask, but like, was he touching you? Is that when you froze and yes, it yeah. was like, you couldn't do yeah. anything or run or. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. Exactly. It was, um, I mean, I was, I was sort of blindsided because I was come up from behind and I was basically constricted and withheld and, and yeah. Um, and you know, he was gratifying himself, which at the time I, I had no idea, no idea what was happening, but I just knew, as I said, in my core, like something is terribly wrong. And and my instinct, there was a part of me, I think that thought I have to get out of here. But for whatever, you know, who knows? Not that that's why, like, but, uh, you know, part of it was that conditioning of this is an, this is an adult. I've been taught to listen to them and to defer to them, even though my gut knowing was like, no, 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 you're wrong. And, but that, so as I said, like, I just, I went completely immobile. That was just my, my stress survival response. Um, and, and how did you finally get away? Do you remember or did he? Yeah, absolutely. Finish. I remember, um, you know, all of, it was like all of a sudden as abruptly as this had taken place, he, he left, you know, he went back outside. Um, and, and I remember I still had my flute and the case and my, my, uh, my musical book. And I remember just going into automatic, like I packed everything up as quickly as I could. And then I think I just went back outside and I, um, I, it's funny. I don't remember, like there's a whole lapse of time. I don't remember what I do remember next is that we were sitting in their kitchen, having dinner around the kitchen day, that same same day, that evening. And I remember my father, it was my mother and my father and my great uncle and his wife. And my father was sitting at the other head of the table to the right of me and just having this semi-conscious thought, as long as I keep my father close to me, like mm-hmm. like in physical proximity, like I keep him in my sight, I keep him by me, I'm still in the room with him, I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. But like, it, it, it wasn't even like, you know, in my realm of thought of like, I need to tell them. Like, I, like it just didn't, it, all I could think was because in when I went actually into that freeze moment, the other thing that I felt in my body was, I realized now it was, it was panic. It was terror. And it was also that feeling like something is so wrong. But what I realized now was that it got internalized in my body. Mm. So as opposed to recognizing this situation is toxic, my body took it in like, Oh my God, there's something inherently in here. And it's shameful and it's wrong. So I internalized all of that. And then it just, you know, I wanted to bury it. Um, so, so that, you know, that I think having that internalizing it and taking it on when it wasn't actually mine to take on. Right. Um, put me in a place of like, okay, now I just have to pretend I have it all together and hold it together, which is what I did. Okay, so, and I know we talked about this uh, yesterday about being able, because I'm sure you're not, I mean, I've heard a lot of people, it's happened to a lot of people, uh, there's that shame, yeah, you don't even, you just bury it, um, mm-hmm. 
when did you start talking about it? Hmm. Um, you know, the very first time I actually um, talked about it at all was, I think I was about 19 and I was at a um, dance intensive. I was, I was, um, I was uh, in this intensive with this dance company and one of my fellow participants who I'd become close with, uh, we were doing this like sort of like very personal autobiographical kind of movement um, choreography that was in, informed by her stories. And I think in that process, I was starting to kind of get in touch with it because up until then, I had really just put it like, I'm putting this in the back drawer where I hope it just disappears like into, mm-hmm. into the black hole. Like that was my whole, my whole, you know, response to it was like, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And I pray to God, it will just disappear and mm. I'll take it to my grave kind of thing. So, yeah. So I remember the woman, Jay, she was a fellow college student. I was in college at the time. And I remember, I don't even know why I suddenly, I guess it was like, I maybe I was just opening up kind of layers because I, we were working with the body and it was this very intense, important workshop to me. It was with a company that I had aspirations to, to work with, to dance with after I graduated. And so I guess I just felt like I need to get, get this off my chest. Um, and it was, it was powerful. It was confronting. Um, I remember crying as I was talking about it just because I never expressed it to anybody. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was, that was the first, not the only time, (laughs) but, but but, yeah, I mean, so I have two, two questions. One is, did you ever say anything to the man? No, um, no, um, not, I mean, I'll say it this way, not while he was living. Okay. So he passed, um, about. I'd say maybe like 15 years ago. And, um, and that was actually when I told my mother, because I remember calling me and saying, you know, you should really send a a sympathy card to his widow. And that was when my, my, I was at the place where I could finally access rage. Mm. Um, And um, so, so that was when I, I told her in person, I didn't do it over the phone, but as far as. um, What did she say? Oh, she was. I mean, she was, she was, she was great about it. She, she embraced me. She felt terrible. Um, She also said, you know, um, this surprised me and didn't, she said, you know, he actually tried to come on to me too while I was pregnant, while I was, while she was pregnant with me. So yeah, which I mean, and, and there's, you know, depending on your perspective, I thought, okay, so I've got, I, I believe in prenatal trauma as well. So I thought, okay, well, I had, I already had bad juju. Yeah. And so that was knowing. I knew like this guy's back. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and others might not agree with me, but, but, um, but it's, but to your question about the, the talking to him, um, I've done many, many, many healing sessions where mm-hmm. I do believe that there is an eternal part to all of us. And I, mm-hmm. I have had, I've had screaming matches with, you know, how I imagine his soul. I have said, you know what, I forgive you. And it's not about forgiving you. It's about forgiving myself because mm. I'm not gonna this anymore. That was a really big one. Really, really. Yeah. Wait, wait, say that again. It's about. Uh, it's not about the forgiveness. It's not about forgiving him or excusing right. him. It's about forgiving myself. 
Okay. And as long as as long as I cut that energetic cord and that imprint with him, it doesn't have any power over me anymore. Right. Great. No. Now, good. Yeah. Good for you. Now, wh what would you say to other people? I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and it seems like it's more common than we would think if if someone else is struggling with that and they also have buried the shame and buried the whole thing what would you recommend to them well um i think one of the things that's in my experience particularly important is to really look at ways in which you can um, facilitate your own healing process with it. Um, and the reason I say that is because with the, the impulse to want to bury and hide the, the impact, the shame is my experience is it's like, it was like mold. It mm. basically, it's so toxically was under the surface of so many things in my life that did not work. So mm. everything from, you know, on the surface, I look like I have it all together and then having, um, you know, issues with high functioning depression, which was really anger. I was turning in on myself, um, uh, you know, um, sabotaging tremendous opportunities in my life because I was carrying so much shame. I would unconsciously feel like, well, I don't really deserve this. Mm -hmm. So I intentionally stopped doing the work or, you know, all kinds of self-destructive behaviors. So I really feel like, um, and it's different for each person, but to begin to get the support and the things that resonate with you that will really help you to process, to grow, maybe even um, become wiser, which I really feel like I know myself so intimately and I feel in some ways like there's nothing I can't deal with because mm -hmm. I've faced my darkness. Right. Um, and, and I mean that, you know, with reverence, not flippantly. Um, right. So I really feel that that's important. And do you think that um, talking to someone, like saying it out loud like when you were 19, do you think that was the beginning of being able to yes. kind of let out, let, let the sunshine in and the mold start going away or something? Do you think Absolutely. that was the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes we're not conscious of it, you know, but once it. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I think it's, it, it's important to have that expression, first of all, because you know, these things that are buried, they take on so much more weight um, as, you know, that like literally that thing that cannot even be said. So mm -hmm. even if, at, even after the fact, it's like, well, you know, and, and realizing like, to your point about how statistically, how common, you know, it used to be like one in seven people. Now it's one in three. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's staggering. And I think the willingness to express is so healing for the self. Mm -hmm. um, and it shows you that you're not alone. There are people who care. Um, and it, you know, it moves it out of your system. It begins to move it out of your system, at least in my experience. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Um, I did a poster at the conference called "Saying What Can't Be Said," mm-hmm. and I because I had started saying things that I didn't think I could say, and I saw, wow, it created so much freedom. These are things I didn't think I could say, but when I said them, like it was no big deal to the other people. But it was a, it was just like you're saying. My whole life opened up. So I let people, they put something on a sticky. It was anonymous and they put it on a wall. And the remarks afterwards were same, that they felt like, like one guy, he put something on the wall. I don't know what it was, but he ended up after that getting help for something that he was so ashamed of that he never told anybody. Or like people said, you know, they knew someone who had murdered someone or they had you know, um, you know, HPV or whatever. And, and these, so it really made a huge difference. And that's when I started, you know, like this part of the show is saying what people don't talk about because it's freeing. And we think we're the only ones who have these things. And when you see, Oh, that happened to her, that happened to her, you know, you get to think it's not your fault. There's not, it's not something wrong with you. Do you know, like, right. You could have blamed yourself, but what did you do? You know, but mm-hmm. we do when it's not, it's like, like you say, when it's inside, we can't see it. Exactly. We are it. But when yeah. you say it, now you can look at it and say, oh, is that even true? You know, that was my, my second book is called Real Talk. And the first step in the process is say it mm-hmm. in a safe space. Say all the things you don't think you can say, you know, how can I complain? How You can you get it out. It's like you throw it up, you make room, and then you can create something new. So that's, yeah. So exactly. thank you for exactly, exactly. For all that. Yeah, it's really yeah. huge. And thank you for being willing to share all that. Um, okay. All right. Before we move on and go to our commercial break, is there anything else from your childhood or from, you know, be- before... I know you were dancing, you were performing, is that you went to, you went to Juilliard, right? For dance. Uh, actually I worked at Juilliard. Um, I went to, so I, um, my studies, I went to, okay. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, no, that's okay. so I, uh, I went to Smith college in Northampton, Massachusetts. Right. Okay. Um, and I was a dance major there. I also, um, my junior year, I went to a dance conservatory called the Laban center in London. Uh, and then uh, went back my last year to finish at Smith. And then a couple months after graduation, um, I ended up through a mutual contact uh, I knew from London, I ended up being uh, working in the dance division. I was fortunate. I also had a background in dance production and administration. So um, I started there in their intern program. So I worked closely with the entire faculty and all of the upcoming students um, and then after that was, you know, it was a 10. And you're a, talking about Juilliard now, right? Uh, yeah, in New York City. Yeah. Okay, yeah. just making sure. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. So, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, and yeah, then, it was, uh-huh. and, and, uh, and then I ended up um, staying on. Uh, I ended up working for the vice president. Uh, I was in the, the business administration. It was basically, it was my day job before when I started going to school to become a healing artist. Um, so I had a really interesting you know, always in dance. It's always, always, always. Yeah. Been, there's been a lot of other things that have shown up. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's been a, 
So you knew. Yeah, some people don't know, but you knew. It was always oh, yeah. that's great. All right. So that's so cool. Thank you for your your willingness to be so honest, brutally honest. And I'm hoping that that makes a difference for other people who have experienced that, who have not yet shared it. So thank you for that. We're going to now go to our commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to get some really cool stuff. All right. Good. All right. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used The Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, instead of a conversation. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, KikoriApp.com. If you want to bring experiential social-emotional learning to your schools, to your kids, to your businesses, to your teams, contact KikoriApp.com. Ask for Haley. That's my daughter. And really, you will transform uh, whatever group you want because it's it's truly uh, incredible stuff. Okay. And as often and as always, as we're talking about today, if there's things you don't feel comfortable talking about, go to realtalkwithhillary.com. You can read my book. You could schedule time with me. It's a safe place to start talking about stuff that you're not free and create an opening for your life to create the life you really love. So welcome back, Kristen. I can't wait to see where we're going next. All righty. So, okay. So there you are. You you graduated. You went to London. You did all this dancing. You're working at Juilliard and the as the as an in admin, but still. And then, what kind of healing arts were you doing at night? Like, what were you studying? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, this is. I would definitely say this is another one of those like 
big, you know, big, big moments in my life was um, I had started a pickup dance company um, while I was working at Juilliard, you know, it was my day job and um, had aspirations to be a choreographer. And so I, had, you know, had a, um, dancers who were freelancing and we would rehearse. Um, and what does that mean, pickup dance studio? Oh, so in other words, so um, a pickup company is basically you're not hiring other dance professionals full time. So it means that you are working on a contract basis. So, okay. for example, and so they say pick up, like it's, you know, you're picking up personnel. Um, so so you would like staff them? Hmm? Yeah, I would basically, okay. I would hire them for the duration of a project. So okay. in, in this case, um, I had auditioned and hired a small group. I think it was about like five dancers, um, fellow um, freelance dancers from New York City who were working in New York City to rehearse, to create a piece on them. And then we had certain performance engagements um, at different venues in New York City where we would be appearing. So it was really a way to, as a choreographer, when you're um, up and coming or even sometimes established and it's not your full-time work, um, it's a way to be able to make your work and to have it be seen. So I, yeah, that's what I was doing at the time. Um, now the healing art part of it came about, I was looking for basically a better day job. <laughs> I, I had worked at Juilliard and then uh, I went on to another full-time position. I was doing fundraising for American Ballet Theater, also in New York, which again, amazing, stellar environment, beautiful dancers. Got to go to the Met um, and was just so burned out, you know, sitting at a desk all day, although I supported what they were doing, but I wasn't actually doing right. it. So, um, so at that point, I was... And did you, did you do that to pay the bills because it was a salary? Yeah. Yeah, it was salaried. It was full time. It was full time. Yeah. <laughs> during, during, the, during the company season, you know, we had yeah. a lot of overtime, like longer hours and that kind of stuff, which was fine. But, but um, I... Um, I knew, okay, I need something flexible. I need to be able to control my own hours and I need to make more money per hour what I'm doing. You know, I can't be on an admin salary and work 20 hours a week, it doesn't work. So um, I started asking fellow, you know, colleagues, dancers, like, what do you do to make money? And they said, oh, I teach yoga or I teach Pilates. And I didn't have a connection directly with any of these things. So one of the dancers in my um, pickup troupe. Um, her name was Francesca. Um, she was studying this practice called Shiatsu. And I didn't know what that was. Um, I assumed it meant, you know, massage. And basically she said, I need bodies. I need people to practice on. Mm. Um, and we were rehearsing. I still remember it was in this old loft, like five floor walk up above Canal Street in downtown Manhattan. Um, you know, this like couple who had lived there, you know, this artist couple who had been there since like the seventies and you know, yeah. were disappearing already um, in the late nineties. But so we were there with the creaky wood floors and I was so tired from running to work at the office, you know, going to rehearsal. I, I live in uh, right outside in New Jersey. So commuting, all that stuff. So yeah. I said, okay, you can, Francesca, you can work on me, just whatever. <laughs> and what I didn't expect, it was like an epiphany for me, was like, I didn't go to sleep, but I had such a massive shift in my state of being. 
You know, I went from like, okay, what, what I did, uh, to like, yeah. and I didn't know until I felt that, that that had been missing. So then I asked her, I said, what was that? What did you do? Um, and then of course she explained to me, this is Shiatsu, the school is actually in New York where I'm studying. Uh, and then I think less than four weeks later, I was at their open house in Chelsea. And um, it's a particular technique. It's called Ohashiatsu because it's created by this man, Ohashi, who became my mentor. Um, he was the first person to bring traditional Japanese Shiatsu, which is acupressure, to the United States. Um, he worked uh, in D.C. at the Watergate Hotel. Nixon was one of his clients. I mean, I don't wow. Know. But, uh, but so, and so he had, you know, he, uh, still has a school, um, uh, and it's, you know, has an affiliated network of practitioners all literally all over the world. And, um, so, and what was amazing to me was just like my gut knowing this has been such a theme in my life, whether good or bad, I was like, this is so extraordinary. There's no way that I can't make money with this. Like it's, I, I didn't even literally, I showed up at, at my first day of class and they started talking about acupressure points. And I was like, what? like, I had no idea that that like energy are like, I never, as much as I was a dancer and I was in my body, but I had no knowledge of the metaphysical. And it was like my whole life cracked open. Wow. Yeah. The first day. First day. Yeah. Yeah. So is that what you do now? Is that the um, dance alchemy? Mm -hmm. Like, how does the... Yeah, I'm just trying to... My brain is not... My brain is not combining dance with, like, the shiatsu. I would think that would be them touching you. How do you get the dance? Well, it's... Yeah, how did you turn it into that? So, um, I mean, it, it was, it was definitely a, a, a process of, as I was going through the Shiatsu program, the program was just about, just as much about learning how to give sessions as it was self-development. So I became very attuned to the concept of I've made of, I'm made of energies. I can feel my energies, um, mm. From the Chinese medicine perspective, what does that even mean? They have something called the five elements, which is the harmonization of the different types of energy with the organs, which is the same as acupuncture. We just, we don't use the needles. That's the only difference. So um, what it did for me was it recontextualized and deepened my understanding of the body in movement and in being and in space. So um what happened with dance alchemy, um, I was performing and um, I was starting to feel really extreme um, stage fright, anxiety, like waiting to go on stage, you know, and I'd always been a natural performer, so that had never been an issue for me. And I was standing in the wings, the, the behind the little black curtain, waiting for my cue to go on stage. And I took a breath and then I really like looked, paid attention 
rather than just kind of being on autopilot, like, okay, I see her do this. And then, you know, Marissa, or Melissa does this and then, um, Kara, you know, and then I, and then I go in. No, I actually like watched. And as I did that, all of that practice from Shiatsu about, they say, be present. Don't mm. be thinking about what you're going to have for dinner while you're touching your client. <laughs> I mean, like, really, like you have to be with them. What I need to go buy before so I can make yeah. the dinner. Yeah. Exactly. You're like, you know, you, you're, you're, you're really practicing and meditation mm. as well. It's a perfect, yeah. Thing. It trains you be what, be with what's really in front of you. Like with your full yeah. attention. And, wow. and when I, and as soon as I, I did that, and then my cue came up and I, I went into the choreography. It was like my dancing was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I wasn't afraid. And and it was like every all of a sudden everything became like the dancers, like everything was magical. It was I had this experience of like being in synchronicity, even though we rehearsed it for like nine months. But, you know, and then the audience is like their presence. It was it was like. It's like you're on drugs. Yeah, or, or I was going to say, like, like when you're in a deeply, like, reverential state, like when you're in a mm. very spiritual place, like when you're in a cathedral, and you're you're kind of overcome with awe, it was it was like that. And so, what I did with that with dance alchemy was, after that experience, I thought, like, how how do I bring that kind of experience for people to be present through their bodies? And I started playing with these workshops um, and I took my knowledge of dance and how to lead people, you know, in a movement class. And then I, and then I brought at the time I had already started teaching Shiatsu. I brought the internal awareness piece of, can you notice your breath? Can you mm. notice moving your hand? Like you've never moved it before. Um, and, and imagery, I had st people start working with their eyes closed so they could access information, uh, and imagination and it organically that first workshop, I had no idea what was going to happen. And, and the whole room of students transformed before my eyes. What I mean by that is like some were having these, these emotional releases, they were crying. Wow. One, one woman, she's like, you know, I remembered walking on the beach with my father when I was a little girl and we would pick up seashells and mm. I remember like moving my body that way. And her father had just passed a couple months ago. Mm. So I was like, I, you know, it, it was something I really feel like it, it found me, all the elements found me. Yeah. Now, when was that? How long ago? Uh, well, the original incarnation of it was uh, about. 12 years ago. Okay. Never. Um, I, I started it and then I kind of left it for a little bit and it didn't actually become now what is dance alchemy until four years ago. Okay. I but that was when you had that moment yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. So, all right. I'm now, so we're going to do something. We were going to try. I think this is the perfect time to, she's going to, I don't know mm -hmm. what it's called, but we're going to experience something with Kristen and you're freeze. Please do this. If you're listening, I don't know what it is, but I'm excited. I already, when you said you had that experience, I was already like, Whoa, I'm excited about knowing more about this. Okay. Beautiful. Right. Doesn't it sound cool? Everybody. Woo. 
Okay. All right. So let's, I'll shut up. Go ahead. <laughs> so this is, um, this is a very, um, just a small taste of dance alchemy for the soul. And this particular exercise, um, each, each dance alchemy for the soul, um, experience has a specific focus, um, a context and a subject. So, um, for this particular one, we're going to focus on connecting with your heart. Um, and I call this, um, accessing the heart. Now, um, one of the, there's many reasons um, from different perspectives, Chinese medicine, from um, the energy systems, from Reiki and yoga, and as well as Western science and scientific research. The heart is important for a lot of different reasons. Um, so by connecting with it, uh, we're going to tap in one to kind of, one, be aware that it's there, you know, it's literally keeping us alive. And two, just to kind of get a sense of what that space feels like. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that after we come back. So, but I want to just go right into it first. So the first thing is just sit comfortably in your seat. Just, you know, whatever feels comfortable. Yeah, I can just kind of shake your shoulders. <laughs> just kind of get out any little wiggles just to kind of settle. And then I'm going to ask you to circle your shoulders a couple of times. So you're just going to bring them forward up towards your ears and back. And this is just to open up your chest a little bit. And also if you're holding any tension. So just notice if you're breathing while you do this, which I recommend. <laughs> yeah. So you're just lubricating the shoulder joints and then opening that heart space. And then the next time the shoulders come around, just let them fall with gravity. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Or alternately, you can also just take your focus down towards your floor. And either way, just take a moment just to notice how your posture is, how you're sitting. Can you let your shoulders feel heavier? And then keeping your focus either down or your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to make two gentle fists with your hands and then bring those fists over your heart area. So literally let your fists just rest just in the center of your chest. As you do that, just feel the weight of your fists, your hands, a little heavier against your chest. Just feel what that weight feels like. As you breathe, can you feel a little rise and fall underneath that weight from your hands? On the exhale, see if you can let the palms feel a little heavier, almost like you have this weight on top of your heart. Notice how this weight feels. 
Does it have a particular sensation or feeling, an emotion? Maybe even a thought. Just silently notice for yourself. Keep breathing into that space under your hands. And now I want you to imagine that space is like a wave gently washing up to the shore on a beautiful, sunny beach. As you inhale, the edge of the wave caresses the shore. So if you can imagine the water just sparkling like diamonds in the sunlight. Can you imagine the wave gets a little bigger? more expansive. Notice if this changes the sensation in your chest and your breath. And now see if you can imagine that wave in your mind's eye, expanding even further beyond the space of your chest, beyond your physical body. Maybe extending several inches out beyond you. Take just a few more breaths here. Feeling that expansiveness the water and the space under your hands. As you come to rest here, just notice again, any sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, Slowly allow your hands to just simply fall back to your lap or by your sides. And when you're ready, you can slowly float your eyes back open and come back. Notice how you feel. How are you doing? Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm like, where am I? <laughs> That's a good thing, I think. <laughs> yes, that was amazing. You know, I wanted to get rid of my hands after, at some point. They were like heavy. Then I got sad. Then I started sweating. And at the end, I was like, I just want to get rid of them. I want to get it off my heart. I wanted to be free. So finally, you said I could move my hands. And I was like, oh. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Yes. That was amazing. 
Beautiful. Um, Thank you. Now we're almost out of time. That's, that's what I'm like. (laughs) All right. So that was so cool. So, all right. So if people want to reach you, I want to make sure you get to say like what your vision is, Mm -hmm. how you help people, how they can find you. We can put it in the show notes. I don't want to miss that. Um, So what can you tell them in 15 seconds? No, let's, let's do it a minute and then, and then we'll close and then we'll put, you know, all the links and everything. But that was like, I want more of that. That was so cool. I hope, I hope the audience is doing that at home. If not, rewind and try it because it was incredible. Okay, go ahead. So, um, so what I, you know, what I really want to leave people with is that when we connect with ourselves, with our bodies and that deeper internal space, you know, that's beyond that, that is inside, you know, so beyond the physical realm, um, we tap into something enormously powerful. That's really where our ability to not only feel, but to heal and to transform. And I would say um, it's the access to our greater selves, you know, our spirits. Um, that's really what I want to leave people with. And um, they can go to my website, kristenmanjonedance.com to learn more about Dance Alchemy for the Soul. Um, you know, they can follow me on, I'm on Instagram. I post regularly as well as Facebook. Um, but I have many um virtual as well as live masterclasses, courses, um, as well as performances with the work that's informed by this. Um, so I welcome anyone who this resonates for Dance Alchemy for the Soul. Please, please, please come find me. Oh, well, that was so cool. All right. So, so, okay. So that's how they find you. And then what do you just want to leave? Like in five years, if this took off, how would you want to leave the world? Like what would be your best impact or, yeah. I, um, I want a world that's dancing. And what I mean by that is, not like everyone has to be a professional trained dancer. I mean, I want a world where people are in movement that gives us joy, that enliven, enlivens us, that inspires us, and that we inspire each other. That's the world I want to live in and lead. Me too. <laughs> wow. Wow. Thank you so much. I definitely want more, but it's our time is up. Thank you so much, Kristen, for what you're doing in the world, what you brought to the world, how you brought your, you know, um, trauma to this work and, you know, just all of it. So thank you so much for thank everything. You. Thank you, Hillary. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for watching this episode. I started getting real with Hillary when I discovered that I was a people-pleasing, pleasant phony and wanted to be more of my real self. We can grow together if you will like the show, subscribe to my channel, and share this episode with your friends and family so that we can have a world that's more real.